Welcome to the Continuous Delivery Podcast. My name is Zarar. I'm Hino. And that's it for today. It's just a two-person podcast. For, for this episode, a couple of days back, uh, I was uh, browsing Hacker News, and uh, a post uh, I came across was titled, Drunk Post, Things I've Learned as a Senior Engineer. And it was a Reddit post made by uh, you flips tables. So I thought we'd, we'd, we'd take a few, few of those uh, lines that he dropped in that, in that fantastic post um, and kind of react to it and see kind of what we, what we think of some of those uh, things he talked about. Uh, the link to the post is in the show notes. And just a quick note, if you haven't listened to this podcast and enjoy it even a little bit, uh, do rate us in, uh, in iTunes or whatever podcast app that you use. So without further ado, let's get to you flips tables and his drunken revelations that, that came to him. Drunken insights. Drunken insights. Here, here's one, Hino. Good code is code that can be understood by a junior engineer. Great code can be understood by a first-year CS freshman. The best code is no code at all. I think that if code is not really readable by somebody who is not necessarily a, a equally skilled or equally experienced as you are, then there's something wrong about your code. If you're the only one who understands it, there's something really wrong about your code. Uh, I like how he actually goes from good to great to the best code of all, the best code of all being no code at all. So um, I read an awful lot of the, the stuff in there that comes from software craftsmanship and that comes from clean code. The less you write, the fewer... Uh, arguments you have to a, to a method call, the more it's readable, like normal English or whatever, I think the better. So I, I really wholeheartedly agree with this particular statement. I like it a lot. I, I do agree with the, with the theme here, but I can't find a counter example where this sort of breaks. Is, you know, we've all taught kind of like design patterns and certain way to organize things or certain layering that is suitable in certain services that we write. Or uh, maybe on the UI side, if you're writing maybe a React app, there's certain assumptions that the frameworks makes that that influences how you write your code. And you may need to understand the design pattern or the framework to, to really understand the code better. Are we saying that we shouldn't be using design patterns that junior people don't know about for it to be considered good code? If your design pattern is obstructing your code or is making your code not readable, then there's probably an abstraction missing. If there is a situation where by applying a certain design pattern on your code, that suddenly your code becomes not readable, then there's something that you need to extract from it so to make it readable again. And I think the author acknowledges this point because uh, they go on to say, good code is code that can be understood by a junior engineer, but great code can be understood by a first-year CS freshman. Because it's in first-year university uh, where people start learning about design patterns and how to, how to use some layering. So if you are equipped with that knowledge, then you, you can afford more latitude in how you write things. So I think the author has considered that aspect as well. Yeah, and, and also in the best code is no code at all. So Which, which is an agile principle. Simplicity is the art of maximizing the amount of work not done. Yeah, code, code just can, can contain bugs, so you... You prefer not to have it at all. Here's, here's one more. We should hire more interns. They're awesome. They're energetic with their ideas. Even better when they can question or criticize something. I love interns. If I didn't learn any, something from, a, from the junior engineer or intern this past month, I wasn't paying attention. 
quite insightful because oftentimes we as well as are we're working with with quite a few teams and and whether or not we consider ourselves the experts uh, oftentimes we are given that label uh, but that doesn't mean that we know everything about everything right there's an awful lot that we can learn like for instance today i i learned that test-driven development in an SAP environment might be incredibly difficult to maintain. Uh, I learned that the overhead that is associated with writing a unit test in, in that environment might not always be worth the value that you're getting in return. Something that I learned today, right? And I, I want to echo that a little bit more because, uh, you know, sometimes being in the industry for so long, you encounter a lot of junior people. And just because you're older, sometimes you get into this default this mindset that you, you you may know more, and you know, a, c- a couple of weeks back, I was with a team, and uh, there was a there was, there was a, a very young engineer, and I, I was explaining pair programming to them. You know, you know, he made a comment, a simple comment, which was like, "Well, people learn in different ways. Uh, some people actually benefit from not pairing, but instead looking at a PR on their own time at their own pace, uh, checking out the branch, trying different things, and that's a that's a very valuable reminder." that just because a practice is very popular does not mean that it applies to everybody. And, you know, obviously, as a, as a coach, I did not push anything on in that situation. I said, of course, if it works for you, it works for you. But then I also tried it, uh, you know, on my own time, uh, d- doing some of those different review techniques. And, of course, I-, I found some value in them, too. So it's always good to hear people who are new to the industry because they come with thoughts which, which you just do not have the lack of experience to have. Right. And let's face it, right? If we're not open to changing our minds, then we're doing exactly what we're asking other people not to do. And that is staying closed and, uh, and being closed-minded. We want them to open up their minds and be open for new uh, experiences, experiments, and trying things out. So we need to basically set that example and, uh, and do it ourselves, demonstrate that we, that we can do that too. Let's move on to the next one. Uh, tests are important, but TDD is a damn cult. It kind of resonates with me after what I did today. <laughs> I get those comments uh, quite a bit, especially when we're starting to introduce TDD to, uh, to new teams, um, people who, um, who are not used to that way of working, who, uh, and then suddenly you, you kind of want to force them to go through the smallest possible steps even before a class is created, testing if the class can be instantiated. Because basically that kind of, demonstrates what you're actually trying to do. I wouldn't expect them to do that in, in real life, but indeed, if that comment comes from there, uh, from people who, who develop uh, tests for every single small step, and if it works for them, great, of course, right? But you shouldn't necessarily expect that from everyone. Um, so I understand where those comments might come from. And I, I, w- I would agree with that too. And, and I've been in a position where I, I was I, I was kind of a zealot related to, to TDD as well, where I... Uh, I suddenly no longer wanted to write a piece of code without having that test. And in, in the meantime, I, uh, I think I kind of um, I figured out where, where it does make sense, where it does not. I understand that there is, um, that, that sentiment is there, and, and I think it's, um, it, it depends on the situation and on the, the problems that you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah, my thing with TDD is that the way it is introduced to teams can turn people off. You know, you use the word zealot or really aggressive about certain things about TDD, uh, mostly the small step. Because some people, you know what? Some people like to write a class. They like to write the method that they know they have to write in the class. 
and, and they like to go from there and then they write their tests. I personally don't like it. I, I, I find that uncomfortable, but I don't look at TDD as a testing approach. And I think that's the problem with it. I, I, I have never looked at it as a way to write tests. I have always used it as a way to figure out what my public APIs will be. It's, it's like that book, uh, The Philosophy of Software Design by John Ostertout. I think, I think that's the guy's name. He has this really nice insight in there where he goes, well, classes should be deep, but interfaces should be small. So classes, classes should do like heavy lifting, but what they expose to uh, as a public interface should always be very limited. And if you take that approach and you start talking about well, I, I want to make the cleanest possible interface, the most minimal interface to my users, and I will use TDD to probe what that interface is, then it, it makes a lot more sense. And I, and I find a lot of developers buy into it rather than if you coach it as this is how you write tests. No, I'm, uh, I'm with you on that one, um, that it's really a way to, to write your code instead of a way to verify it in the end or, or even as, as part of it. It's a, it's a way to help you create your design. It's a way to help you identify what responsibilities your, your classes need to have or your methods need to have and so forth and so forth. And a great example on how even though a product can be great, which is TDD is, but without even good marketing, it can have a lot of enemies. Okay, I'll go, let's go with a few more. This one I can resonate to. Uh, because uh, I just invested a bunch in uh, ergonomic hardware for myself, especially with the whole uh, work at home thing. Carpal tunnel and back problems are no joke. Spend the thousand dollars you need now on good equipment. Yeah, and not just that. Uh, make sure that your your company or your employer is is aware of that as well. It's it's incredibly important. I've worked with a with a company where my chair was was absolutely horrible. I kind of wanted a, a totally different chair and they said, well, we can, don't have a budget and we got to get approval. So the day afterwards, I came with a um, with one of those uh, balls, those gym balls. Uh, and I basically used that as my chair. And I have been sitting on gym balls at my, my office at home for years since. And it's only this year that I bought another decent chair, but it always worked out really well. And that was 25 bucks at the time. Right. So um, instead of waiting for uh, for somebody else to uh, to basically do this, uh, I made the investment myself. It was not not a lot. Of course, if you if you want to buy an ergonomic chair, it's going going to cost you uh, a lot more. You're doing this for eight hours at least a day. If you can't sit on a comfortable chair, if you can sit at a table that is adjusted to your uh, profile at the height that you need it. If you can't put a telephone book under your laptop or have a a decent keyboard that doesn't, first of all, uh, rattle so that everyone on the floor knows when you're typing, and then on the other hand, that also makes your your wrists hurt, well, then you have a problem. Then then sooner or later, you will not be able to, to come to work to uh, produce anything, and uh, and that will have a, s- a significant impact on the revenue for your company. And, and you'll be miserable. You'll be miserable, which I was for the last little bit un- until I invested in some Logitech stuff here. You know, it cost me a fair bit of coin, but I mean, I am I am thankful for it. Here's one, and, and this is uh, you know you don't hear about this a lot. The most underrated skill to learn as an engineer is how to document. 
someone please teach me how to write good documentation. It's true because in school, they don't teach you how to document. Certainly in the workplace, uh, you have a lot of documentation tools like Confluence and Readmes and all this, but nobody actually teaches you the at what level to document, how to document. It is something that the industry doesn't pay a lot of attention to. I would agree if it's more generic. I disagree if it comes to documentation. So more generic, I'm really talking about communication, right? So if you can communicate well, my assumption will be that you can document well. That I 100% agree with. Engineers uh, can learn a lot from from other folks on how to communicate ideas clearly in a non-technical way. So we, t- we have a blog, we have a, a post about this, by the way, as well, or a, a part about this. The other one, though, documenting itself, uh, I don't think we need to leave document documenting code or documenting concepts. We don't need to do too much of that. Uh, a lot of that should be self-evident in the code. It should be self-documenting the code in, in the first place. If I open a brand new Git repo, I would love to know a little bit more about the architecture of the whole thing. And I realized that we have frameworks which provide some de facto convention uh, that, that, that replaces the documentation, but I find that it, it's gone a little too far because people can use the same framework in 10 different ways now. So I'm not talking about like what this code is doing, that that should be self-explanatory, but how the whole application hangs together. I think there's definitely a point he's making there because we have been relying on frameworks to provide us convention and patterns, but within those conventions and patterns, there are many different variations where people just are not documenting, I find. So anytime I check out a repo, there's almost like a big ramp up time just for me to understand who's calling what to get one thing done. That, that's the only complaint I have. Right, or or have a high level understanding of what the responsibility of a certain component is or that particular repo or, or what, what have you. Architecture.md, just like we have a readme.md, have an architecture.md, which explains the architecture for that repo. So let's do one more. Being a good engineer means knowing best practices. Being a senior engineer means knowing when to break best practices. That's shuhari. It's not different. So as the the whole metaphor around shuhari uh, makes a lot of sense. So um, following best practices, being a good engineer, that's the the ha and the the re is when you achieve enlightenment, if you will, and you uh, you know when to break them and and why you're breaking them. Not not just for good reason, right? You're breaking them for a good reason because you can kind of create those practices yourself. And that concludes this edition of the Continuous Delivery Podcast. Goodbye.